Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. We have the third part of the Fort Worth Zoo episodes of the Here We Are podcast. I'm comedian Shane Moss, and joining me in this intro is the special guest co-host for the week. Sophia Rocklin is joining me today. Hello. And one of the many wonderful things, other than being just uh, the best communicator that I've uh, shared the stage with in any of the science shows that I've done, um, another thing that, that Sophia adds to the picture, you, you may have noticed if you're a long-time listener, you may have noticed we don't really talk much about botany and ecosystems and and the environment as much it's just because i just don't know enough about it and i've been trying to learn more and expand the reach and get into more subjects and what's wonderful is that uh sophia is uh she's a plant lady into botany into ecology into all of those things uh so it's a very um uh, it's going to bring a lot more options of subject matter to the program, including new partnerships, which Sophia has arranged to uh, to help out in promoting our Head Talks tour, which we've been traveling around. How have you been enjoying the Head Talks tour? It's, so? it's kind of unbelievable. I live half of the time in the Peruvian Amazon drinking ayahuasca. <laughs> And I'm I'm still you know undecided if this head talks is trippier or, <laughs> but it's been amazing traveling around but, you know, the country with it, this yeah, buffoon. With, <laughs> but it's the feedback that makes it worth it. You know, I think that what's so special about head talks is not only the, the you know bridging together the science and the comedy and and the psychedelia, but also just we create spaces after the show. You know, and people mill around and chat and get to know each other. So that that's just been really special to, to to connect with people yeah and i'm always if you come to head talks i'm going to be plenty free to talk to um after the show uh because sophia will have an epic line <laughs> that takes over an hour for for people wanting a book signed by her and there will be like one person that comes by to oh, like no. take a look at Is that, I, i'm saying this as a joke but you're kind uh, of like kind and of that's cringing. true uh, that's actually that's actually what happens um yeah yeah, you're the star of the show it's terrific and 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 the the amazing thing I've, i've been trying i've been telling you listeners for a long time now that I've I've been trying to in expanding stand-up science and wanting to do more kind of a dream of mine is to have people especially like I'm trying to talk my friend Peter McGraw who I'm who, who I contributed into his book stick to business which is coming out April 4th I'm trying to get people to have a new book coming out academics to tag along with me for a while to kind of build a rapport mm-hmm. because head talks gets better every single time that we do it we get uh, you know we, we get kind of uh, some common questions and so we kind of both know each other's takes and we improvise and have fun and and joke around a lot more and and we're both feeling a lot more loose and comfortable on stage and and refining and we're giving each other notes on our on our uh on our talks and and everything and so it's so cool i i just uh it, it just for the audience it improves the quality of the show so much and uh it improves the quality of the organization in my vehicle uh <laughs> having having a lady's touch so uh so sophia was um was she 
is obsessed with plants. So, uh, have you always been obsessed? I don't know. Actually, I haven't always been obsessed with plants. I just developed a mind, uh, sort of mild flirtation with plants. I even, to be honest, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I just knew something about plants? Mm. And then, you know, my kind of gateway drug into the plant kingdom were. were plant drugs, in fact, <laughs> working with psychoactive, what we call teacher plants or medicinal plants. Um, and then from there, I just sort of dug inwards and I wanted to know everything about the anatomy and the chemistry and their evolution and all, all of the things. So I'm getting deeper and deeper and deeper. It's, I think, the greatest joy in life when you find a new subject that hooks you and you read something, you find like one book or something like that, and mm-hmm. then it just changes the way that you see everything and yeah. you reassess all of it, all of your past views on life and, and just have to rethink everything and just get obsessed and dig in and, and just excitedly are consuming. That's when, that's when learning's very easy when you're totally. excited about it. And especially with a subject like, I mean, I guess you could say with anything really, but it's, it, it's just an endless kind of learning. I'll never know enough, you know, and, and, and we were just listening to a course, actually, an online course the other day about botany, introduction to botany. Yeah, great courses. It was wonderful, yeah. And, 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 and what we were learning there is, you know, that, that with the plant kingdom, unlike in mathematics and in physics and even ast- astronomy, you know, there, there are no laws and they're very unpredictable. So this is a kind of new, uh, uncharted territory in the plant world. Plants are very rebellious. Very rebellious. I can't wait to learn more about them. I don't know more about plants. Uh, I've had I've had succulents before. Um, I I had a place and I was like able to keep succulents alive. <laughs> that's like I feel like that's a good starter plant. I and I had no idea what I was doing. And anytime I go to uh, when I when I have a place and spend some time in, I I feel guilty even trying to get a plant. I remember when I was like living in Malibu, I was like, maybe I'll get an orange tree or something for my deck. And I was like, I don't want to kill a beautiful tree and everything else. And, uh, and you, uh, you've been talking with a company that kind of helps people, uh, really get started. They, they're the, uh, they kind of shepherd people on yeah. their way. The shamans of oh. plant keeping <laughs> in, in a way. Why don't you talk a little bit about I wonder about if they're going to use that. Yeah, Horty is a freaking amazing company. They're rising fast and I love their mission and what they're up to. Um, it's a plant, it's a subscription based uh, sort of plant company where you sign up and every month you'll receive a new plant and Horty you know is is more than that it's actually designed to help people become more connected to their plants and grow together with plants um, so you know you will you'll receive different tools and manageable care instructions and it, the whole point is just to help you know consumers and customers build confidence in their plant care which is so cool you know I think it's a broader mission I love <laughs> especially that for urban like... dwellers you know like how does this work Give me the starter plant, please. Yeah, and then they yeah. eventually give you like, okay, you're ready for the uh, for the intermediate level totally. plant. Totally, yeah, yeah. And they're and they, I mean, they're just really nifty, like little tools. Like my leaves are browning at the edges, or these guys are looking a little droopy. And you'll always have somebody to chat with about your plants. And I know they have big plans coming on the horizons, just about developing more culture and community around plants, supporting artists. I did a talk at their space once, so I, I'm I'm I love the company. Yeah, it's awesome. And I, I want to say this just a couple times so you guys remember. But if you go to Horty Adat. It, heyhorty.com that's 
H-E-Y-H-O-R-T-I.com to subscribe now and use the code HEADTALKS. You get 10% off of your first month and you also support the show. You support our tour. I know that uh, that listeners are writing all the time wondering when we're going to um, get through and, and the more... Um, you know, support and interest that we get from everyone possible, uh, the better. And and not only um, is uh, is this a great opportunity for you, but Horty, who who has a bunch of customers and everything already, is helping us promote yeah. the tour, which is super cool. Yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, because I, I we're we're talking a lot about psychedelics and so on, but my realm is really psychoactive plant medicine. So to me, it seems like a natural alignment to have people who get you know involved with these plant guys actually bring plants into their home and start to develop a relationship with them. So you know, it's awesome. And the other thing is, is you're listening to this and Valentine. Day just passed, and listen, I'm sorry, some of you just screwed up big time <laughs> with Valentine's Day. You took a chance. Uh, one of you guys out there, you're walking, uh, you're walking with your uh, with your lady one day, and there was like a guy playing tuba on the street, and she made a comment about like, "Oh, I wish I had like a skill like that." And then you bought her tuba lessons for Valentine's Day, and now she has a twelve week intensive course of tuba lessons that she's forced to go to because she doesn't want to make you feel bad for your awful gift. This is the chance <laughs> to go to Horty, get her a real <laughs> gift, and now you can be like that tuba thing was just a joke here's your actual <laughs> actual present here's a jungle instead <laughs> here's a jungle i love instead. whatever couple you're talking about right now this is this the is tuba good couple. the tuba the the gardening tuba couple <laughs> um so uh, the <laughs> other thing that i want you guys to know is that that uh, uh it, it, you know you can go to heyhorty.com and you know there's no there's no harm in looking at their site i recommend going to the care section just because there's just a bunch of fun articles about um how to learn about plants and why you should care about plants how to dispose of plants properly mm -hmm. why artificial plants are maybe not the best thing for you maybe not the best thing for the environment and just so there's just free information so even without signing up or anything you can have a peek around there yeah so and anywhere and anywhere you are in the united states actually they'll ship so it's pretty awesome you can plant straight to your door so hey horty thank you horty for your support everybody go to hey horty h-e-y-h-o-r-t-i dot com to subscribe use the code head talks to get 10 percent off your first month and enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast I have another very special episode for you guys this week special because one i have a very special co-host with me anthropologist sophia rockland check out her book when plants dream and also very special because we are hanging out at the fort worth zoo today we got to do a little tour of the hospital 
of the animal hospital here. Sophia, what were you into it? I mean, or? I mean, I we saw equipment that I could not imagine in a dream. I, 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 I don't know what the heck is going on in there, but everything looks very interesting and very organized. So I want to learn more. <laughs> we have a couple vets joining us. Tara Riley and Kim Rainwater are joining us today. Thank you both for yeah. being here. Thanks for the tour. It was lovely. This is really exciting. I dated a veterinarian for a few years. Her, this was like her dream job. A lot of kids want to be a vet when they grow up, but like most kids don't even venture to be like zoo vet. Even kids are like, no, you can't ask for that much. Um, <laughs> what an incredible life you guys have. Tell us a little bit about some of your background and what you do here at the zoo. So I'm Kim. Rainwater. I'm the director of vet, the vet services here. Um, I've been here since 2016. I'm actually from Omaha, Nebraska, um, which has a great zoo as well. And I wanted to be a vet ever since I was little, like a lot of people, um, but it just kind of stuck. And then in high school, I did a zoo academy class at the zoo, actually. And that's where I decided, you know what, I really want to be a vet and I want to work in a zoo. So I want to be a zoo vet. <laughs> a zoo academy class? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why man. didn't we take that? What? Yeah, it was a zoology class um, at the beginning of the day. So we got up really early to get to this class. And then we got to do some externships in the different areas as well. Do they still have those available? I, I think that they the high school, there's a high school there that still does that. Yeah. Wow. That sounds interesting. Um, I mean, I just, I'm meeting you guys and I'm just getting angrier and angrier about my childhood and the, the many things I was denied. Um, <laughs> Tara, why don't you introduce people to yourself? I'm Dr. Tara Riley and I'm one of the associate veterinarians here at the Fort Worth Zoo. I'm originally from Colorado. Again, has very good zoos there in Colorado as well. And Although I, Omaha has often ranked the number one <laughs> zoo, I know it's a, you probably get a little jealous sometimes. But Colorado does have some good ones. I mean, Colorado is pretty true. amazing in and of itself. That's though. true. This is true. This is true. Can't can't forget about all the snowing and skiing that I don't get to do here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, I, same thing as as Kim. I really always uh, loved working with animals and knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian, much like many of us, I think. Um, we developed that starting at a young age. I did a lot of work with wildlife, and I grew up on a ranch, uh, first-generation ranch person. And so I kind of learned everything from scratch. And uh, the more species I worked with, the the more I wanted to do. So just quenching that thirst, what what better place than zoo medicine to experience all the variety of species that we have here and to really get into all the conservation work that we do here, which is just so meaningful. Hmm. So I, I'm curious in terms of going to vet school, what other, I imagine you have to take, I imagine you have to do all of the, maybe I'm wrong here, but I imagine you have to do all of the same vet school every other vet in the country has to do, but then additionally um, extra things that seems like you're like top level, uh, top level vets. There must be a lot of extra special licensing and things like that that you have to do. Not really special licensing, but we can, so people can get board certified um, in zoo medicine. Uh, the other associate vet, Sarah Canizzo, who's not here this week, uh, she is actually board certified. Um, I have a ways to go to get mine because we have to take a big test. I have to be first author on, it used to be uh, five publications. Um, they've recently changed it to three. So it makes it a little bit easier to get in. Um, you have to do a residency program of three years or 
have the equivalent of six years of full-time experience in a zoo to be able to sit for this board exam. And then the exam is two days long, takes people um, typically a year of studying, um, at least 10 hours a week dedicated to it. So it's a pretty intensive thing. Two days long. Holy mm-hmm. smokes. <laughs> Are they giving you breaks? They just lock yeah, there's you in breaks. a cell? There's not, yeah. Are there tests like, you know, like one-on-one combat with rhinos and emergency <laughs> drills? <laughs> they used to have a practical, See. but no. They um, So the first day is all multiple choice tests, a whole bunch of them. And then the second day is more um, essay type questions and things like that. So no gator rustling or anything. I guess they've taken that out. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the job's for, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it just seems your average vet is working on cats and dogs. And maybe someone has like a pet rabbit or something like that that comes Mm -hmm. in once in a while. It seems like you guys would have to learn so much to be able to... Yeah, we base a lot of our knowledge on domestic animals. So everybody in zoo medicine um, really strives to have a good base in in all the domestic animal care. And then we can extrapolate from there. Well, I'm, I'm just asking like how specialized each thing. And the main reason why I ask is because my health coverage is a little spotty uh-huh. uh, at the moment. And I was wondering, is like, could, it, could you look me over after the interview? Maybe I I, my might back's been acting up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you have, you know, one day you got to look at a snake. The next day you got to look at a, a, a rhino. Oh, uh, even within the same day. Yeah. So, I mean, zoo medicine is really a general specialty. And we just, yeah, we have to know so much about so many things and we know where to find the information in references either publication like journal publications or books or um, part of our training is also learning who to talk to like who's more of an expert in any particular animal species or group of animals than you know we are and go to that person for more information do you have more yeah there's lots of communication between us um, as colleagues between us between other specialists Um, so we'll consult with others in the field um, who are board certified in particular specialties so say op veterinary ophthalmologists um, or veterinary dentists. We'll consult a lot with them on some of our difficult cases, veterinary orthopedic specialists for orthopedic cases. Um, So that way we just get the best of all worlds combined because then we can combine our knowledge um, for cases that could really contribute and utilize that. Um, For some of our non-human primate species, we'll consult with human doctors as well and human specialists in the field. And those are just some great examples of um, how we collaborate together. Um, And as Dr. Kim was saying, um, Dr. Rainwater, the uh, collaboration between all of us and and making sure that we do uh, perform the best care for all of our animals and give them the best care that we can at the highest level of medicine that we can perform. And sometimes doing that means putting a bunch of heads together and coming up with the best plan and getting all the information and knowledge we can from all specialties in all fields. Hmm. So there could be like a cardiologist in Fort Worth who receives a phone call one morning from the zoo like, hey, we've got a special problem. And and he he might come in and work with you guys? We have a kangaroo here that needs your help. It, does a doc? Well, you guys don't have kangaroos here, but we, imagine we do. you we do. do. Okay, we have a can- <laughs> perfect example then. One more so, animal. So, so someone's uh, uh, so there's like some family practice doctor, or some cardiologist, or something. He's sitting around just like dealing with difficult patient after difficult patient, and he gets a call from you guys one day to take a look at a kangaroo. That must happen sometimes. Yeah, I actually had that happen not with a kangaroo, but with a Tasmanian devil at a different institution. <laughs> 
that had a heart problem. I, I Stranger mean, than I could have imagined. Yeah, ended what? up needing a pacemaker. Actually, so. oh wow, yeah. what an incredible day! To <laughs> if you're just a regular old human doctor, and then you get that call. I mean, how do you how do you find the the right human doctor for the job? You just call around. You you eventually have a list of people. Yeah, it's hard to to get into um, to break into all the different fields and find people that really want to help the zoo out and then have time to help the zoo out. Um, so we try to build those relationships before we actually need them, uh, because when you just call somebody out of the blue and say, "Hey, we need help with this," they may not have time to deal with it because everybody has busy schedules during their day. And are there situations where you have to call like the uh, the top like? hippo expert needs to like quick take a helicopter in here uh to have a look or not quite like that but we actually did have a hippo illness and um most people in their zoo vet careers have not done a whole lot of hippo medicine because hippos tend to be pretty self-sufficient they don't need a lot of you know extra veterinary care typically Um, so you can go a whole career with hippos in your collection and not need to do anything with them Um, so yeah we certainly when we had that uh, hippo illness we reached out to other vets who have done more uh, hippo medicine hands-on hippo medicine and consulted with them Hmm. how much of your equipment is specifically made for say zoos or animal, livestock or something and, and how much is just stuff that that um, is in human hospitals that you guys are using yeah very little of it is specific for zoo medicine a lot of it is specific for veterinary medicine mm-hmm. um, but then there are some things that are more human medicine um, mm-hmm. but we have some of the really big endotracheal tubes um, that we use to intubate large animals those are special made for some of the really big species so it's like the longest or largest one 30? Yeah, I want to say 30, 30 is what we have. I think they go up to 34, <clears throat> oh, but I 30 millimeter. Yeah, 30 millimeter. I guess I, guess I can't, I don't know the, the length, but right. the diameter. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> like if you're doing an exam on an elephant or something, mm-hmm. you're going to need some really large mm-hmm. gear there. Yeah. I was curious when you're using something like, say, uh, um, general anesthetic, Here's, here's what brings this question up. I'll share a fun story. It's going to take a couple minutes. I think it will be worth it for all of us. Um, I was, this is when I was dating the veterinarian. We had a problem with our, our dryer in the new place. It was an easy fix. The little vent on the back came out. And I was like, I just got to pull this thing out. I'll put it back. And she's like, no, don't, you'll, you'll scratch the floor. We'll lose our deposit. I'm like, this is going to be, it's so easy. It's just, it's not going to be, we have this whole argument, right? And then, uh, and so she goes to work and I'm like, I'm just going to, I'll scooch it out a little bit to fix this, this vent. You put a hose on the vent, right? And so I, so I scooch just on the off chance that I pulled it out too far and scratched the floor. And then she's going to say, I told you so. And it's going to be a whole thing. Mm-hmm. I scooched it out as little as possible and then crawled over the, over the dryer. Um, and I'm like upside down. And then I slipped and I cut my thumb open on the, uh, on the vent thing and then got stuck upside down wedged behind the dryer and i was like i think i might die like this 
I think that my girlfriend so was there? Home. No, she was at work. <laughs> and my and my legs are just hanging up and I'm upside down and there's just like blood squirting everywhere and I'm like, I'm gonna bleed out like this. This is how I'm done. And then I was finally able to uh, to get myself up. I call her up. I don't think I had health insurance at the time. I was like, I cut myself. Can you bring some stuff home for stitches? She she uh, eventually gets home. I'm like holding my hand above me all the, and I hadn't. I would put off like doing dishes and stuff. So I'm like holding my hand up, and then also like doing dishes with one hand, so I don't get in trouble for that. <laughs> And then she gets home and she, uh, she, she brought the Novocaine or whatever, injected me with the Novocaine. And then she starts to give the stitches and, and I'm like, Oh, it's not. And then she like gives me another shot. And then, and then she starts going again. I'm like, Oh, and she's like, well, I'm out. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'll just tough it out. And then she gave me the stitches and, uh, it was very painful. And then like, one minute after she was done, like my whole arm fell asleep. And I was like, oh, you just needed to wait five minutes after giving the Novocaine. I was like, by the way, when you're working on your animals, you might want to give this stuff an extra few minutes before you open them up. So, fun story to get to the question, how in the heck do you figure out when you're, when you're doing something with, uh, with a prairie dog and then you're doing something with a kangaroo? How are you measuring how much of anesthetic or whatever you're giving something? That's a great question. So there are some pharmacokinetic studies in certain species um, where we'll actually have studies that have been performed by our colleagues or by ourselves, um, where we can look at those timeframes and say how drugs will metabolize differently in different species. And we can use that knowledge um, to help ourselves and to help our colleagues, which is where there's always ongoing medicine, there's always new studies and research to be done, more information to be gained. And then for all those in-betweens, all those blank spaces, if you will, we have to collaborate with colleagues and use empirical data, as well as obviously comparative medicine, comparative anatomy and physiology with the next closest species that we do have um, data for and data on. And many of these things too, you have to consider these animals can't tell us what's wrong. Um, so obviously in human medicine, say a human ophthalmologist, in fact, my father just went into the ophthalmologist this last week, um, and he had a vitreous detachment in his eye. Um, and his doctor told him, um, well, if you see the curtain falling, you know, or if you see um, floaters come back in, because you might have a retinal detachment. And I remember commenting to him, oh, so that's what that must look like to people and to the animals, because we only see from the from the veterinary side, we don't actually get to experience what they're experiencing. Right. Um, and so again, a lot of that is is comparative based on um, animals that um, can communicate. And obviously, our keeper staff do such a great um, job and all of our animal care staff with knowing their particular animals and their individuals, they know all of their personalities all of their individual quirks, and they know right away if something might be off with that animal. And it may be just something very subtle, like their behavior changes, um, something that kind of clues them in that there might be something, or maybe um, they're stepping over a shadow that they weren't stepping over before, um, and things like that that we can use to determine, hmm, maybe we should look at their eyes. Maybe there might be something with their eyes. Um, and so we really rely a lot on our animal care staff and our keeper staff to be able to uh, communicate with the animals and read their behavior to be able to let us know 
um, if there's a concern that we that we need to look at, because obviously that's just one of the challenges of veterinary medicine and, and zoo medicine in particular is just not being able to communicate and have our patients tell us what's wrong. Hmm. It's like Dr. House vet edition, some zoo <laughs> edition, like you just, I mean, what is the diagnosis? Like, yeah, I guess you go in and you experimenting seeing what's happening have have you had any ex- u- unusual strange cases lately any any highlights something that just you couldn't couldn't quite figure out i don't know about lately but we did have so we had an otter case uh north american river otter case this was not all that recent um but she was she got really sick wasn't eating um lethargic so then we tried to figure out well what's going on with her and she had quite a few uh, abnormalities so we got her under anesthesia uh, there are published uh, anesthetic regimens for the species who got under anesthesia, did blood work, saw that she had some abnormalities, um, tried to do everything we could to correct those abnormalities. Um, but then we can't, like domestic animals or humans, you can hospitalize them, have IV catheters in them 24 hours a day to continue to give them medication to support them. We can't really do that with an otter. And it wouldn't be kind you know, to have an otter in that kind of long-term situation. So ultimately, we ended up taking her to surgery um, to see if there was something going on in her abdomen that we could try to surgically fix. And her liver was more abnormal than I've ever seen a liver before. Ultimately, uh, we were not going to be able to get her um, to improve or resolve her illness. So we did end up euthanizing her. And then we did a necropsy and we sent tissues off for microscopic evaluation or histopathology. And she actually had cancer throughout her body, a lymphoma. Um, and so weren't going to fix that. But it was it was an interesting presentation and something that I hadn't necessarily experienced with otters before, although lymphoma is not unusual for that species. Mm-hmm. And when you come, when we have these cases, I guess you're reporting these back to, you're sort of contributing to a greater body of knowledge. And how, how does that work? Are you sharing this research with other institutions? What does yeah, that look like? Yeah, when it's something that's really unusual, or if we have a cluster of things, then um, we'll try to present that in um, meetings, national meetings with other zoo vets, um, and also publish it in the peer reviewed journals. Um, and then, you know, also just contribute to the zoo knowledge with contributing information to the species survival plans. So a lot of the species survival plans have veterinary advisors that collect information yearly on that species um, to say, okay, well, what did you guys experience in terms of illnesses or deaths? And how can we use this information to improve care for these species going forward? I remember something from the tour that I I kind of I just caught a little bit of, and I wanted to make sure and ask what was interest is something about how there's kind of different anesthetics or, or different kind of like mind altering, uh, like ways of, of which you put an animal under mm-hmm. uh, for, is that species related or is it dependent on like the length of time you're trying to put them under? What's, I figured there was like a, a one size fits all tranquilizer. <laughs> I wish <laughs> that would make things easy, right? Yeah. No, it, it's, it is somewhat species specific and it's somewhat um, situation specific as well. Yeah, we have a variety of, of different um, drugs that we can use at our disposal. And some of them are ones that you may be familiar with in human medicine. Um, and others are ones that you maybe have never heard of before. Um, and all just varies very much depending on the species. Um, going from a tiny little um, toad um, all the way up to an elephant, as you can imagine, 
the size is very different. What drugs um, actually work in that species is very different. And again, that kind of goes back to um, the body of knowledge in, in literature that we have to go off of with what, what metabolizes in that species and how it metabolizes. And we use that data and that knowledge and we extrapolate um, through the size um, of each particular patient, and we can develop a protocol for that individual. Um, and for some procedures, we may use um, for the same animal a completely different protocol from procedure to procedure, um, depending on how long we need them under anesthesia. Is it something that may be stimulating, or is it something that we just need a quick look at something and we want them to be able to recover and wake up pretty much um, immediately? Um, what's the weather outside? Is it really warm? Do we need to worry about how they thermoregulate and get some extra heat in the room? Um, all of these kind of play a role in, in what drugs we use. And we cater it to every individual animal and every individual case for what needs to happen and how long that they we need to have a look at them under anesthesia. So we do cater it very much to every individual animal. And we do change it um, depending on the animal's body weight and body condition, um, which changes from time to time as well in between. So you can never know exactly what the animal is experiencing. And what it's, it, it, it seems like such a strange experience from an animal's perspective to like, I, I always, I've always found this fascinating with animal research when you like get out the blow dart gun and tranquilize something to get the hormones to study stress or something like that out on the African safari. It must be so strange for the animal to just come to and be like, what in the heck just happened there? That, that must, there must be something like that that happens with your animals. Are there any, is there any anesthetic that like the animal learns to just like love it? Like there's some, some anesthetic that a frog is like, yes, it's anesthetic time. I don't know. I guess it's hard to say what they, what they really like or what they, you know, how they experience those things. But we can see if we um, are having to immobilize an animal multiple times that sometimes we'll need to up the doses because they may develop a tolerance to it. Uh. Um, if there's an animal that has a health problem that, re that requires, like, so, for example, an animal that's um, injured a limb or something and needs multiple bandage changes, and we can't do that safely without anesthesia, sometimes we'll need to increase the dose over time. Are there any animals there that are particularly fussy? Like, they're just, you know, you roll your eyes and you're like, oh my god, here they are again. They keep getting boo-boos and, you know, almost, like, frequent visitors there? There's certainly some animals that tend to get in trouble more than others, that's for certain. <laughs> um, in fact, we have an, an armadillo that, um, <laughs> depending on the species and depending on the individual, some of them are just uh, looking for trouble is what I like to say. Some of them just like to get into trouble, just like human children. You have some children that never get sick their entire lives and you never have to take them into the doctor except for preventative medicine like vaccinations. And you have another child that gets sick every single week, it seems like. So uh -huh. there's definitely certain um, fan favorites, if you will, that um, that we see more frequently than others. And I like to joke that they just miss our faces and they want to see us more often. <laughs> so what happens with the armadillo? What, 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 is, what are they up to? What, what, what are they coming in for? I like to say that they kind of have a form of ADD. They're always looking for something to do, something to get into. Um, just like some of our uh, wild armadillos that we have here in Texas, they're always getting their noses and their tails into things and um, finding ways to to get into things that they shouldn't be getting into. Um, and you just never know with them. You just never know. Our, our current little guy needed a, a tail amputation because he got his um, tail stuck. And so um, we had to amputate that tail. We tried to save it. Um, but we ended up needing just at the very end of the tail. Yeah. It wasn't the whole tail. Just yeah. a tiny portion of the tail. Oh, no. Um, and so he just needs more frequent frequent bandage changes while it's healing. Hmm. Mm. 
I wonder if he gets phantom tail. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Do you, are, are there, so oftentimes people have, have dogs that freak out when they realize it's that it's vet day or, you know, it's hard to get the cat and the cat carrier um, to go to the vet. Um, but I, I imagine at a zoo, it's probably a far more regular and common practice. How, how do the animals kind of get trained to kind of be easier to, um, to work on and see you guys feel comfortable when you're around and, and not be overly stressed? Yeah, I mean, some animals just get stressed um, around us. And I think that depends on what their past experiences have been. So historically, with zoo medicine, we use a lot of darting. And so the animals will see us coming and not like us coming around. But um, it's becoming more and more common to actually do training for medical procedures. So that takes a collaboration with our... um, behavior curator, the keeper staff, uh, the curators, and the vet staff. Mostly the technicians um, are the ones helping with that on on a regular basis. And so we can train the animals to present part of their body for an injection. Uh, we have a diabetic mandrel that gets insulin every day. Uh, we can train them to present different body parts. A lot of the primates present different body parts, open their mouths, so we can just kind of see what's going on with them, feel their belly. Um, and then there's some that uh, are trained for blood collection as well. So it can be stressful when they're under anesthesia um, or you know, darting them to get under anesthesia. And then we see changes in the blood work based on that. But when we can actually have them participate in a calm manner, we actually see that their blood work values change. Oh, which is wow. really cool. That's amazing. Yeah. We we met a couple of hippos today. We were learning, are they being trained to to respond to you guys drawing blood from How do you draw blood from a hippo? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's a great question. So um, much like actually like dairy cattle or um, cattle, um, uh, beef cattle, you can actually draw blood from the base of the tail in a very similar location. Uh, you can't actually see the vessel. Um, so you just have to anatomically know where it is um, to get to that blood vessel. And they are actually trained to go into a chute system. Um, again, a, a, a nice little area where they can go in and line up and we can access um, all sides of their body safely and be able to um, desensitize them um, to having their tail touched and just having their tail moved um, and just getting used to the sensation of, you know, alcohol on their skin um, and uh, just gradually train them up to being able to just stand there and, and having dr- blood drawn um, without any stress to the animal and they're used to it and they get positive reinforcement. So they're an active participant in their own health care and they enjoy it and they look forward to it. Mm. Yeah, our rhinos are trained to participate with blood collection. So. When you're talking about the blowguns, you'll have to forgive me for that grabbing my attention. <laughs> um, but that that sounds like the did, was it like a blowgun class that you had to take? Do you have like a do you target have, practice? Do you have target practice and stuff. So it's tra- it's some people use the the blow darts um, where you actually blow the dart out. Yeah. Um, I like to say that I don't have that much hot air to be able to do that routinely. Uh, but so I we use other darting equipment. So there's also dart pistols, which mm. is uh, compressed air fired. Um, and I can titrate that pretty um, closely so that um, it's essentially similar to using like a blow dart or something where you can use just enough pressure to get the dart into the animal's tissue. Hmm. and not cause a lot of extra damage. And then there's also dart uh, rifles 
Um, some of them use a charge. Some of them use compressed air, and those are for longer distance uh, shots, hmm. which we don't necessarily have here unless we needed to dart an animal out on the savanna exhibit. And it's just a longer range. Most of the time, we're in closer quarters, so we can just use the pistol. Hmm. And just to feed off of that, um, the pressure that we use, like um, Dr. Kim was saying, it, we can titrate it and actually get it to a very fine degree for how much pressure we need and, and the distance the animal is away. But this pressure, we're talking, you know, very, very small amounts of pressure, um, less than even uh, you would use for like a paintball gun, for instance, if you're familiar with paintball mm -hmm. guns. I am. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I kind of bring it up, one of my favorite or my favorite scientist, actually, Robert Sapolsky, is uh, he does a lot of primate research and he does a lot of uh, a lot of stress response stuff. And to be able to get proper cortisol readings from, uh, say, a baboon or whatever, you can't have them stressed because of your presence. And so it's got to be like this sneaky, <laughs> you're out there a ways away, like do 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 do, and then you just like quick. Uh, blow dart them and and so there's a, as minimal effect as possible is that do you guys uh, do you guys ever like change up your outfit or like uh, <laughs> like wear a, a hat and glasses or, or anything like that so they don't recognize you uh, what 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 do you have to do to kind of uh, uh what preventative measures like that do you do to kind of marginalize how much an animal freaks out well, we try not to let them see us too mm. much when we're going and getting ready to dart them. And so we try to dart through a small window if we can mm. uh, so that they're not aware that we're even there. Mm. Mm. So um, I, I, I yeah. have a question. I, I want to talk about um, artificial insemination and love making at the zoo. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any programs going on like that? And are you the ones responsible for that? And do you help you know, animals set the mood? What's that like? What are the programs like? Well, so artificial insemination is driven mostly by the species survival plans. So if there's animals at different zoos, but their genetic match would be the best uh, for the population, then we can, <clears throat> we, the, the species survival plan works towards getting, you know, semen to the female or, I mean, most of the time that's, that's how it, it is. Um, if they're not able to actually physically move the animals to be physically together. Um, and so that was, is what we would do in artificial insemination for. And a lot of times we're working with theriogenologists on that. Um, so another, a, a, at a different institution and then they come in and actually do the artificial insemination procedure. What word did you just use? Theriogenologist? Theriogenologist, yeah. What's the that? study of reproduction. Oh, okay. Yeah. That must be, again, here, I, I, I know I'm anthropomorphizing a bit, but, but taking on, looking at uh, these experiences from the animal's perspective, that must be uh, pretty interesting for a female to just miraculously become pregnant one day, having, having not had an actual encounter with a male, and then they become a pregnant. I guess it's just... Uh, you're just pregnant one day and you don't it, it, is is there ever do do mothers that were artificially inseminated do they ever react slightly differently to their offspring than um than a natural mating from my experience i think maternal instincts are just incredible honestly mm -hmm. I, I i actually um artificially inseminated and inseminated my own horse 
Um, and when she had her full, she had never had a baby before. And when she had her full, um, she, I had no idea how she was going to respond. And she was, she ended up being a really great mom and she didn't even have any experience. So I think it just varies depending on the individual. Um, I don't know if Kim's had any, um, other experiences. No, I think it really depends on that individual female's instincts because we can have some that they're, they've gone through uh, natural covered, you know, with, and with a male and then they don't end up taking care of their offspring. And then the ones that go through artificial insemination, um, they a lot of times do pretty well. In terms of uh, more natural pairing and mating, what's the hardest thing to to get to mate what's the uh, when i was at the cincinnati zoo i i got to meet um the famous fiona the hippo that was the most underweight um hippo that ever survived and i asked them how long it took um you know for for them to get get along when the male was introduced and they're like well according to um (laughs) you, you know whatever when we realized she was pregnant and calculated it backwards it was probably the same day <laughs> that they were paired together. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that there's, I don't know if this is true. I've heard stories that pandas are just like ridiculously hard to get to uh, mate with one another. What's the hardest thing to, um, to pair? I don't know about the hardest thing to pair, uh, but... I think that it just depends on the institution, you know, and what species they're wanting to breed or not wanting to breed. And um, I think sometimes it can be challenging with elephants to get them to um, get pregnant. And so we, we monitor their reproductive cycles pretty closely. If I were a female elephant, I knew that gestation period was, what is it, like 26 eight months about, or something? About two years, yeah. Yeah. I'd be a little apprehensive <laughs> too, before, <laughs> before undergoing that. So you're attending labor, is that right? If are you like wiping the sweat off of the animal's brow, and or, or what what happens there? No, we try to let them do all of that th- themselves as mm-hmm. much as possible, um, and most of the time it works out okay. There are times where we need to intervene if it looks like there's an animal that's having trouble giving birth or the birth isn't progressing like it should, then we intervene. But we really try to be hands off as much as possible to so let the mother and the the baby bond. And I guess sometimes zoo guests are lucky enough to see that, right? They'll yeah. come and see it happening live. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Do you guys ever, so like I said, I got to brag about seeing um, Fiona, the, the big star that got all of these news headlines. Do you guys ever ever get to see anything like really special like that that pops up that's really unique to your zoo? Yeah, we have, we've had some uh, amphibian conservation programs going on here, and the um, amphibian um, and reptile curators have been working with some reproductive specialists on trying to do artificial insemination with our some of our amphibian populations. We actually just had little Olaf uh, hatch recently. Now he's a Puerto Rican crested toad that was the first from born from uh, in vitro uh, fertilization, basically. Um, of a uh, wild um, semen from a wild frog um, down in Puerto Rico that was brought here and um, inseminated into uh, one of our females. Mm. Wow. Really exciting. Well, first off, I don't want to, just because I don't know how much time we're, uh, we're going to spend, so I want to make sure that we uh, have as much time as, uh, as we need for this. This is something that both Sophia and I have been looking forward so to excited. hearing about for some time. It's very unusual. I think that I, I would have never uh, I, 
I, I would have never thought that I'd be talking about this. Uh, you guys actually do acupuncture here at the zoo, right? Can That's you, right. Can you talk a little bit about, um, ac- I, I mean, it's, it, it is funny because I, I think, um, historically, um, uh, there's been people in the public that have, that have been, a little bit concerned about and, and maybe in the past there were some you know zoos or in particular like circuses or something that didn't take very good care of of their animals and things have come a long way over the last century or so but there's still a little bit of um uh, uh public con- concern about animals in ca- uh, captivity but uh, but zoos do so much to bend over backwards to help so many species to do things to uh, things that are nearing extinction to repopulate the earth and and uh and it's really like a spa treatment um for a lot of these animals in here um is how they spend most of their lives so talk a little bit about animal acupuncture what it's all is it a new field so um i'm this is dr tara riley i'm i'm certified in veterinary acupuncture so i do acupuncture for veterinary species um not human species (laughs) but uh we do we do offer acupuncture as well for our animal species here which is one of the many different things that we offer um as part of um, our grand scheme uh, plan for each of the animals. If, if acupuncture is something that can help, then that's something that we add in um, for whatever that uh, animal may have or may be undergoing. And so I have here kind of a, a little assortment of different acupuncture needles for, for visual appeal, if you will. Um, and acupuncture needles um, range in size. These are all um, very, very tiny uh, solid needles that go into the skin. Um, and they're a fraction of a millimeter. So they're extremely tiny, so much smaller than needles that you might find um, if you go in and have blood drawn for from yourself or you donate blood and you've seen those needles before. Um, and they range in lengths as well, depending on the species and how deep um, the tissues are and what you're trying to access with those acupuncture needles. Speaking back to um, what you were talking about with that stigma against um, acupuncture, um, acupuncture has come um, a very long ways in the time since its inception back in Eastern medicine, um, Eastern Chinese medicine, and and back when um, the first acupuncture needle um, was was placed many, many, many years ago. No one quite knew why it was working. They just knew that it worked. They knew, well, if I place an, a needle here, um, and I have a headache, my headache goes away. And they didn't know why, and they thought it had to do with energies and meridians and, um, and bad spirits at the time. Um, and then as medicine improved in, in all fields, we began to know, and as anatomy and our knowledge of anatomy just expanded, we realized that the reason that they worked in certain places and not others is because we, they basically were mapping out the nervous system and the nerve channels and the vascular channels before they even had any idea what they were. Um, bloodletting was, you know, originally to, to let bad spirits out. Um, before we knew anything about, you know, oh, wow, there's all of these blood vessels and they all come and go to the heart before we knew about the circulatory system, before we knew about the nervous system and the nerve channels. And really that's all acupuncture is. You're, you are stimulating the nervous system. You are accessing the nervous system in a non-invasive route and you are accessing the blood system and the blood supply to the body in a very non-invasive route, which is really amazing that we can just do that because there's so many things that, 
that, that this can help with. It can help with um, arthritis pain, um, just as people get older and as we live longer, since our medicine and our health is, is our healthcare just improves over the years and humans live longer. It's very similar with animals. Our animals are living longer, um, longer and longer than they have before. And just as people, um, they can develop arthritis as they get older too. And, and acupuncture is great for pain. It's great for um, nausea. It's good for if you have an animal with um, cancer, then you can help them through like having nausea or pain associated with that cancer. Um, it's great for like diabetes. You can help regulate the blood flow um, to the kidneys and to the rest of the body and the different organ systems. It's really fascinating. And in trauma, you can actually help the wounds heal faster. There's just so many different applications to acupuncture. Um, there's hardly anything you almost can't use acupuncture for, which is one of the benefits of it. So that's just one of the many things that we use um, as a part of our healthcare program as a complementary uh, therapeutic, we still do all of our traditional Western therapies. And then we add in the acupuncture as needed um, as well, which um, they work great together. They complement each other. And um, even for allergies, allergies, um, who doesn't suffer from allergies in Texas? Mm -hmm. um, it can work for allergies, many, many different, many different things. So we utilize it whenever we can. That's amazing. I hold acupuncture near and dear. I worked at it as a receptionist at an acupuncture clinic for five years. So I've seen many humans come in and I learned a bit about diagnostic procedures and in traditional Chinese medicine and in acupuncture, you'll typically talk about elements and sort of the elemental imbalances. Um, are, are you doing a kind of a fusion of that? Do you consider like dampness or fire or water when you are uh, diagnosing the animals you work with? That's a great question. Um, I was taught through a very Western scientific based um, program called CuraCore um, here in the United States. And the, the professor of that program is actually, um, I graduated from Colorado State University. Um, and uh, Dr. Narda Robinson teaches that course. She's um, uh, from CSU as well. Um, and so she teaches kind of all of the science based. We, we learn about all of the, the Eastern traditional um, ways of thinking. And then we learn about all the science based and Western based medicines and all of the research that been done. And we take all of that science and, and learn about pretty much the full spectrum. So I can't speak much to the, to the Eastern therapies, but I can speak a lot to the Western therapy approach. I just love that acupuncture is a thing that humans stumbled upon. It's some, I mean, the first person that was just poking themselves randomly <laughs> right, with needles. And like, they, they, they like put a needle in their cheek and then their, their knee feels better. Like, Oh, well, I thought I was just poking myself for no reason. Seems like there's some benefits to this. How do you go about developing, learning more about animal acupuncture? How do you develop new techniques? Do you, do you see patterns and you have the established, like this is, uh, you, you know, you put this in a, in a squirrel's leg here and, uh, and it, it helps with the circulation and you see, you you have the knowledge that you already know works. Do you use that to then start experimenting with finding new acupuncture uses? That's an excellent question. So much like we talked about with all of our traditional therapies, a lot of this is based on comparative anatomy and physiology from the most similar species we have data on. Um, so in your example of, say, the squirrel, um, we might use, say, a feline anatomy or an animal that has very similar anatomy. Mammals are, are much easier in that regard because much of the many of the uh, anatomical differences are subtle and slight. Say one muscle belly in a cat 
in a squirrel is the same muscle belly, just smaller potentially, and and maybe is in a slightly different location anatomically since squirrels use their limbs to climb and to grab and grasp more like human hands do. Um, But say in birds, take that and you extrapolate it to birds and it's completely different. Obviously, the anatomy of a bird is very different. Um, but we do have data mostly in, in parrot species and lots of domestic bird species. And we can extrapolate that and take that from bird to bird and know, well, these points work in a bird and this point does not. There's a very particular point on the forehead um, that is a calming point to many species, but in some species it can actually be excitatory. Wow. So even species to species, you can have differences for the very same point. And then even from, then you take that and you say fish or snakes or um, tortoise species, then how do you take that anatomy? A tortoise, you're not going to be able to do acupuncture over the shell. So there's many, many points that you could access, but in some species you can't. And then you have to go with the points that you can actually access in that species and tailor it to that individual. To be clear, you're saying you've done acupuncture on a tortoise. I have, yes, (laughs) yes. And I've even done acupuncture on a hedgehog. And you can imagine the challenge going in between the quills on a hedgehog. Wow, that's very funny. So how how do you get them to, I mean, for acupuncture, you... ideally would stay relatively still. Um, how do you kind of seduce them into the idea of kind of hanging out without stressing them out? Oh, that's a great point. That is an excellent question. So some species, um, I did acupuncture on a burrowing owl um, that actually fell asleep during his acupuncture treatments. Because nice. um, as I said, some of the points that you use, the very first point I place is that calming point in species that it's actually been known <laughs> to calm. I love this. That's amazing. <laughs> Can you, if it, like, afterwards or afterwards, do you ever, you know that point on, you ever, before bedtime, you ever just stick one in before you, uh, <laughs> as, to put yourself off to sleep? Off the record, well, yes, I, I actually do um, acupuncture on, on myself for knots in my back. Um, mm-hmm. Really? And acupre- uh, acupressure which, and, and massage therapy, um, which they're accessing the same system. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Amazing. So... I, some of this, some of this stuff might seem um, almost like a, almost even an overkill to to some people out there with our with our modern healthcare system for humans being really not up to snuff. Uh, I, I mean, the animals in a zoo really get amazing healthcare, but part of I think part of the reason why uh, things like acupuncture, that uh, the importance of having to develop these new systems, is. Uh, animals in zoos are also living a lot longer than they mm-hmm. are in the wild too. So doesn't that probably comes along with a host of new problems that wildlife wouldn't normally even encounter, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like for for example, are there any like spine issues or anything? Like like what what happens when an animal ages that you have to deal with that you wouldn't normally have to deal with just say like rehabbing your general like owl out in the wild or something yeah we do have um the older animals that get um arthritis in joints in their limbs or um degenerative changes in their spine and we can use medications to a certain extent for those things but sometimes the medications can actually cause some lethargy or a little bit of sedation and then that um prevents the animals from moving around as much as they otherwise would. And so we try to minimize the medications as much as possible. And that's where acupuncture can come in. Hmm. Absolutely. I've certainly seen um, species that were either able to decrease the dose of medication that they're on when we come 
buying it with the acupuncture. Um, and sometimes we can even wean them off of the medication entirely and maintain just on acupuncture alone. So that's just another way that um, they go hand in hand and work, work great together as a complementary um, approach to the health care of that particular animal. Yeah, and the goal is really to maintain a great quality of life for the animals, for them to be able to function like they otherwise normally would. Uh, and so we try, we use all these different modalities to try to, to help them through that as they get into their older years. Mm-hmm. Now, I imagine sometimes you have like, I like intensive cases. Um, we, we heard a little bit about uh, herpes in the elephant community. Um, and we saw these to go boxes, like emergency kits. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Is that typical for elephants in the wild or what, what, what kind of procedures do you have laid out when there's an outbreak in the elephant community? Yeah, it doesn't tend to be an outbreak per se, but more so affecting the, the young ones. The calves are the most susceptible. And so we, like I said, you know, when we walk through the tour, the, we monitor our, our young elephants very, very closely, monitor the whole herd closely, but the young elephants closest and uh, do exams on them weekly. The elephant staff is monitoring them all the time. We get blood from them weekly so that we can check their blood values. And then if we see that they are having a problem, we have those boxes ready to go so that we have all the various different sample collection tubes and bags that we need right there uh, so that we can just station all of that over at the elephant barn. We have medications in the boxes. We have things like catheters so we can place um, IV catheters and get IV access to give medications um, and just all the various supplies. Some of the medications we grind up to make it easier to administer to the animals. So we have things like mortar and pestle to grind up the, the medications just so that we don't have to do a lot of grabbing of various different um, supplies from different areas. It's all there ready to go um, in case we need to respond really quickly. Do, is- the, uh, are the, do they always enthusiastically take their meds? No. Mm. <laughs> no, it is a process. Um, and so we're, there's constant training going on as well to get them to um, accept medications orally because um, that sometimes is the easiest route if they're willing to participate. But then if not, then we have to go to things like uh, IV or injectable intramuscular um, injectable medications. Um, and sometimes the rectal route is the way to give medications and fluids as well. You guys have the vet techs do that one. The rectal the, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? There must be some stuff with the animals where where you make like the new person deal with it. Like who, who who's doing the who's doing the poop scooping around here? Is there is there one person scooping all the poop in a in a zoo, or is there like a different specialist? They're like this guy's it's a great. shared duty. Oh, you guys got to get your hands dirty with that too. I mean, everybody in a zoo has to be willing to chip in and yeah. do the dirty work. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> 365 um, days a year. <laughs> well, uh, so there, there must be a lot of, I know my, um, my ex's vet job working at a, regular old vet clinic her schedule was like you know to 20 minutes of of seeing an animal then a five minute break then 20 minutes five minute break and then and then there'd be surgery days where it's like you have an hour for surgery then 10 minute break and an hour for surgery 10 minutes and it was just constant through the day but i imagine so much of your work is having to do tons of research and making all these calls and coordinating things with people so uh, what what percentage of your work is is that end of things that's kind of hard to answer i think it varies from day to day or week to week uh we try to schedule our day 
so that we're seeing cases in the mornings and then we're writing records and doing research on things in the afternoon, but it doesn't always work like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're essentially emergency veterinarians too. And so if there's an emergency that comes up, then we just need to address it when it, when it arises. What's harder, really large animal or really small uh, I think both have their challenges. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it must have like for lugging around a knocked out giraffe and then you got four people holding up a leg so you can get in to check the heart rate and stuff yeah. it must be. And, and then, but then the very small ones that must. That, yeah, there's a whole different set of challenges for the very small ones. I, yeah. I, I would think in terms of, in terms of getting a, um, uh, kind of a, a board certified surgeon, I'd almost think that that some of the larger mammals or something might might translate a little better than than mm-hmm. s- say working on a snake or something like that. Yeah, I don't know that the board certified surgeons like the small an- well small or large animal board certified <laughs> surgeons would want to come in and do surgery on a snake or a frog. What's like the smallest animal you've you've done a procedure on? Uh, at a different institution, I can't remember the, the species of lizard, but it was a really tiny lizard that had uh, eaten a piece of like a rock, a piece of gravel. And so I attempted to um, do surgery to remove that. And um, it went okay for a while. But I think that there was just damage done by that expanding the GI tract. And ultimately, it never fully recovered. Um, so I think that's probably the smallest one It was just a few grams. Yeah. And you must have ultra specialized equipment for that. You can't just use like a regular old scalpel for that now. Well, yeah, I mean, there are specialized equipment, but it's not actually specialized for that purpose. We use a lot of um, op- um, ophthalmo- uh, ophthalmologic oh. equipment, ophthalmology equipment for that, since those are really fine, delicate instruments for working around the eye. Uh, so sometimes we, tran- we, we use those to translate into these smaller, tiny surgeries that we do. Kind of feels like having magnifying glasses over each eye. <laughs> <laughs> tiny surgeries. Mm-hmm challenging do you guys have people with um like the local universities that come to check things out to do uh research in in different programs or are there do you work with the universities at all on on any projects not on an ongoing basis, but we do work with various different researchers from all over um, on different research projects. So we have a um, institutional animal care and use committee here. So all the research proposals that come to the zoo uh, go through that committee that we review um, and and then decide if we want to participate or not. And a lot of times they're just asking for samples, but then sometimes they, they want to come here and actually do some research too. So... Both, both Sophia and I kind of have like dream jobs and have pursued and, and, and you guys have this incredible dream job. And what, what also comes along with dream jobs when you first like have the idea, like, I want to be a stand up comedian or whatever your, your idea of being a stand up comedian, you watch late night television and the comic comes out from behind the, the corner and, and everyone's laughing and then they get to meet the famous person, but the, day-to-day grind of actually being a comedian is is not as glamorous as you think it might be if uh, when you're a kid and watching it on on tv are there any uh are are there any things with your job that are like the uh that were like the harsh awakening that you had to deal with or, or just kind of more of a grind, the things that you didn't think of when you started pursuing this field. 
Well, when I was a child, I wanted to be a vet because I, I wanted to work with animals. I did not want to work with people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just so silly, right? Because every job you have pretty much is working with people. And that's a really important aspect of our job is collaborating with the animal caretakers, collaborating uh-huh. with each other. So we're working with people all the time. Um, and I enjoy that part of the job, thank goodness. <laughs> but as a child, I was like, I just want to work with the animals. But I think the other part of the job that's um, that can be tedious is the record keeping. Mm. Um, so, you know, it takes, we just got through our uh, Lester Flamingo Roundup where we looked at every single one of the 100 plus birds in that flock, did exams on them, take, took blood from some of them, did vaccines on them. And so that took all of the, the vet staff a few hours one morning to do, but then there's hours upon hours upon hours of record writing after that to document everything that we saw and everything that we did. And that part of the job, while it can be tedious, is just very, very important um, so that we can look back like we can or anyone else can look back and see what was done on these these animals. Hmm. So I guess then I have to ask the other question. What's your favorite part of the job? I think for me, I think it's those cases where they come in, you're not sure what's wrong with them, and it's like putting pieces of a puzzle together. It's kind of like you mentioned before about a a Dr. House episode. You don't know what's going on, and you get more and more information, and you narrow down the possibilities, and you, you find your diagnosis, and you know what's wrong, and you treat that animal, and they leave the hospital, and there's this giant smile on the keeper's faces that their animal's back to normal um, from being sick, and, and you can just see it on their faces because, of course, um, they're just happy to have their animal back feeling well and back to normal, and you feel good because it was a case that was maybe a challenging case that you've, you found the diagnosis, you treated the animal, and they responded, um, and, and it's just that satisfaction of, of a job well done. That's beautiful. Yeah, I thought you were going to say you see the smile on the animals' faces as they leave. <laughs> Sometimes it looks like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you they get like a lollipop and a souvenir <laughs> from the vet. <laughs> Amazing. So I want every all you listeners to know to uh, uh, check out the Fort Worth Zoo, fortworthzoo.org. Not only are there all sorts of cool programs um education programs that you can hear about that but there's also uh kids camps if you happen to live in the area but there's there's also things like this at every zoo around the country so no matter where you live go out check out some zoos my listeners are are people that are lifelong learners and and zoos just aren't just for kids they're a great thing to do with uh you got some friends in town and you happen to live in fort worth and you can show off one of the top five zoos in the country great place for a date great place for family get-togethers and so go support your local zoo they're awesome not only is it like cool to get to see some animals but you're also supporting furthering our knowledge and understanding of wildlife you're you're furthering and and helping uh, with conservation efforts around the world with every zoo pass that you get so go check it out it's a great time and you're also doing good in the world by supporting a zoo so um with that Thank you, Kim and Tara, for joining us today. Thank you, Sophia, for being an awesome co-host. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Bye. 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 (laughs) 
Next week on the Here We Are podcast, Earl Miller joins me. I stopped through MIT back in November and had this fantastic episode with, he's the Pickauer Professor of Neuroscience at MIT. He received his BA in psychology from Kent State University, PhD in psychology and neuroscience from Princeton, and he is in the um, Picar Institute for Learning and Memory in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. So we just had a fantastic conversation about high-level cognitive functions, about complex goal-directed behavior. It was really really challenging, challenging subject matter done in a really accessible way. He was a fantastic communicator. I walk into a place like MIT and I'm intimidated. Uh, and you know, I've, I've talked with 300 scientists or more than that, uh, 300 scientists just on the podcast, another 200 on, on stand up science. I still get a bit nervous and intimidated each time, but going into a place like MIT, I was shaking in my boots and this dude was just so nice and so cool. Um, so make sure and tune in next week for Earl Miller and I hope you're hearing this on time to check out Head Talks. We are uh, still going through Arkansas. We're going through Fort, Fort Smith, Arkansas. Me and Sophia Rockland, uh, anthropologist Sophia Rockland, author of When Plants Dream. And we are in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I love that we're bringing these shows through. You know, we cut through the Bible Belt and taking it to places where where you would never think um, kind of psychedelic uh, themed entertainment would be happening. And then uh, doing an Oklahoma City stand-up science show and then in Austin doing both head talks and stand-up science and I'll have Sophia with me that whole time she has a she has a separate stand-up science talk that she's been doing about how uh, how plants spread their seed and it's been so much fun then she'll be flying out flying back to Peru and I'll be uh, off uh, on my own doing stand-up science heading straight west going through Glendale, Arizona, and, and um, uh, Tucson, and heading to San Diego, and I'm going to spend some time around California. I have some pretty cool stuff lined up there that I, I can't share just yet until it's a thousand percent confirmed, or it's actually confirmed. I just want to make sure that it's happened yet, but there's there's some pretty cool things that I'm going to be sharing with you guys in the future. Um, life's been pretty great career-wise lately. A lot of exciting stuff happening. I'm going to be heading up the West Coast, adding um, more dates by the day, and then uh, and then doing some regular stand-up in around Michigan in April. Um, adding more stand-up science dates. Adding a whole bunch of head talks dates for May and uh, doing a big tour around the, the north, starting from Wisconsin and heading um, to uh, Portland from there, and a whole bunch more stuff being planned all of the time. If you haven't had a chance to join my email list to put in your zip code, go to shanemoss.com to do that, and we'll alert you when we come through your area. If you see on the site anyone, any of these cities, 
anyone that you know there. If you want to help support science communication, or uh, I know some uh, many of my listeners are are the most excited about some of the psychedelic work that I do. If you want to support that, again, I'm going into these places where they don't get stuff like this very often. So please spread the word for me. It makes me um, very excited when I when I can get people. F- through word of mouth when people that are already familiar with me give me a referral that makes my life a whole lot easier than than trying to market to a bunch of strangers and also draws just a a cooler more informed crowd and so i hope to see you guys very soon check out libro.fm the only in book uh, audiobook company that supports your local independent bookstore and splits 50% of the profits with the independent bookstore of your choice. Offer code here we are. That's libro.fm. Offer code here we are to get three months for the price of one. Guess who gets that first 15 buckarooskies? That's me, Shane Moss. That's a big part of how actually a little part of how I how I pay for the expenses and buy new equipment and everything else and improve the quality of this show is from support like that from you guys. So you'll be helping me out. You'll be helping myself out by educating yourself. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, my goodness, you guys are my favorites. Network.